Welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Helliker, and joining us today is Dr. Paul Douglas Newman from the University of Pittsburgh, Johnstown, mm -hmm. and the author of Freeze's Rebellion, The Enduring Struggle for the American Revolution. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much, Carl. It's nice to have you here. And actually, the book looks like it's Fries, but it's pronounced Freeze. That's it's pronounced Freeze. Um, Freeze is a German name, and the pronunciation is like F-R-E-E-Z. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you, know, you, uh, you mentioned two other very uh, important rebellions, uh, along with Freeze's Rebellion, mm -hmm. the uh, Shays Rebellion of 1786 and the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794, uh, which all kids in American history learn about. Mm -hmm. How come we know so little about John Freeze and Freeze's Rebellion? Well, Freeze's Rebellion broke out in 1799 and it's the last in a trilogy of, of rebellions against centralized federal authority in the days after the American Revolution. Why do we know so little about it? Why do we know more about Shays and more about the Whiskey Rebellion? Well, I think the reason we know so little about Freeze's Rebellion is because it was engaged by Pennsylvania Germans. And in the late 18th century and throughout the 19th century, the fact that Germans kept themselves, uh, insisted on speaking their own language, staying within their own schools, that clannishness led non-Germans to view them as being dumb Dutchmen, uh, as being not politically astute or aware. And so that characterization of Germans as dumb Dutchmen led people to ridicule this event. Um, some called it the hot water war because one method of deterring tax assessors uh, by German housewives was to open their windows and dump the assessors, uh, scald them with hot water. And it was things like that that trivialized the event. And um, the principals, uh, John Fries and two others who were charged with treason, were convicted but ended up being pardoned. And it was a small event. Uh, in terms of its scale and its numbers compared to the Whiskey Rebellion. With the Whiskey Rebellion, about 5,000 men appeared in arms and were threatening to sack a federal arsenal in Pittsburgh. And with Shays' Rebellion, you had tens of thousands of farmers in western Massachusetts who shut down courts and used violence to stop the foreclosure of their lands. But with Freeze Rebellion, there was a conspicuous lack of violence. So. Uh, a lot of times, Americans tend to take away uh, or remove importance from something when there doesn't seem to be a climactic event involved. Uh, Shays' Rebellion ended in a pitched battle between forces. Uh, the Whiskey Rebellion saw 5,000 rebels getting ready to sack Pittsburgh and an army of 12,000 marching under George Washington and Alexander Hamilton to meet them and put them down. And Freeze Rebellion was without that kind of climactic event. And so I think it was forgotten for a long time and pushed under the rug. But a significant event, uh, if you're thinking about how individual Americans see themselves within the political system in terms of judging the constitutionality of federal legislation. This is a time period when Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were arguing that states should have the right to either nullify or call for the repeal of federal law. It's a time period when the Supreme Court had yet to take on the principle of judicial review for themselves. It would be another few years off. And at this exact same time, uh, the freeze rebels, these tax resistors who were opposing not only a federal direct tax on land that funded a military buildup to fight a war with France, our former 
revolutionary ally, but they were also opposing the sedition law that had made it treason and sedition to speak out or write out against the administration, the president of the United States, or the policies that were leading to war with France. Now, they were arguing that this legislation was unconstitutional and that the people should petition for the purpose of seeking its repeal and that they shouldn't obey laws that they believed were unconstitutional until they heard back from their government about these positions. And so this is a, a rather novel and a particularly revolutionary technique of people taking power for themselves, the power of popular sovereignty, what I call popular mm -hmm. constitutionalism or popular constitutional review. And it's incredibly radical. These weren't dumb Dutchmen. They were people who were very politically astute uh, and uh, really were using the logic of their own revolution. This is interesting, you know, not knowing anything about the rebellion myself until I read your book, I, this subtitle caught me, uh, Enduring Struggle for the American Revolution. I suspect here that you're not talking about the American Revolutionary War. Not the war, but the revolution writ large. Uh, the revolution in American life where we go from a system of government bound by kings and parliaments to a system of government based upon the ideal of popular sovereignty that each man is his own king through his own vote, and that a government is a fair government that's representative of its people. And that's another issue for these Pennsylvania Germans, representation. Uh, the national events that I just talked about, for them were also connected to state and local governmental affairs. The people who opposed this direct tax tended to be German Lutherans and German Reformed. They were a majority in their neighborhoods just north of here, the Saucon Valley, the Lehigh River Valley. Now, now why would they oppose these taxes? Wasn't I, I understand nobody really likes ta taxes, but wasn't there an awareness that at this time taxes were for the public good? Well, these taxes were funding a military buildup. The uh, federal government had uh, appropriated $10 million for defense in the winter and summer of 1798 to prepare us for war against France. These Germans were Revolutionary War veterans. They had fought with and alongside French troops fighting for American independence. These Pennsylvania Germans used the American Revolution and their service in it to claim their citizenship as U.S. citizens. And so this defense buildup, building, and you have to see what kind of defense was being built. This $10 million was funding the creation of a permanent standing professional army. These were militiamen men who had, uh, citizen soldiers had volunteered for service in the revolution and fought for their country. And here they see the creation of this permanent standing force, much like the force that Britain sent to the United States to put down the American Revolution. It didn't seem to fit with revolutionary principles. And it was being used against our former ally. Now, the other local issue is that these folks used the militia to organize their local lives. They wanted to elect their own militia captains, yet in the state of Pennsylvania, just a few years before, those offices became appointed by a governor instead of elected. They wanted to use their militia for the purpose of organizing political parties and organizing their elections, and that had been taken away from them. In the meantime, they're a majority in this local scene, and yet it's Quakers and Moravians who controlled the towns, mm -hmm. controlled the economics, banks, their merchants. They also controlled local seats of power. 
They were the sheriffs, the justices of the peace, the prothonotaries, the register of wills and deeds. And yet they were a minority in this German-speaking neighborhood and as Quakers and Moravians had refused to serve during the American Revolutionary War because they were pacifists. So here are the Germans in 1798 and 99 are calling them Tories and are seeking to take their positions from them. We were starting to talk about the uh, relations which were not all that friendly, I guess, between the Quakers and the Moravians and the uh, church people, the Kirchenleute, is that correct? Kirchenleute, yes, Kirchen the church sorry, people. The church people. Can you talk about that and the relationship? Uh, right. Well, they not only contested with one another for local governance, but when it came time for the Federalist Party in Philadelphia, who had appropriated all of these defense measures and were levying the direct tax on lands and dwelling houses, they relied on local Federalist Party members to assess the tax. And in this region, it was Quakers and Moravians. So there was a natural antipathy there between the Kirchenleute, who saw themselves as patriots, and the Quakers and Moravians, who they called Tories. Okay. Um, how did the German roots of the Kirchenleute uh, influence the resistors' response to the, the Stamp Act and the other repressive uh, measures? Well, um, they used their German remembrances uh, and maybe tales that they heard from their grandparents and great-grandparents. Uh, in the 17th and 18th century, different German principalities passed hearth taxes, taxes on individual homes that were direct taxes, unavoidable, people had to pay. And so this was the federal government's very first attempt to directly tax the people of the United States. Prior to this, they had passed customs duties, excises on sales goods and what have you. But this was a direct tax on houses. To, so to them, immediately it reminded them of hearth taxes. Um, as well, they had a tradition in Germany of being able to collectively, burghers, uh, join together and express their gravamina, their grievances for their rulers to hear and to react to. So the principle of freedom of speech, uh, First Amendment right that's developed in the Bill of Rights, of course, is something that's already familiar to them that they can use right away and they can bridge that cultural gap that way. Very good. Uh, now, if I could I ask you to talk you know, specifically about the rebellion itself, what, what path did it take? I mean, how, uh, how did the John Freeze rebellion come about and how did he lead this rebellion? Well, that's a good question. Um, at the time, uh, it was first uh, referred to as the Northampton Insurrection because the uh, first bits of resistance surfaced in Northampton County, but also in Montgomery County uh, and in eastern Berks County. But mostly, mostly in Northampton County and the townships that surrounded the Lehigh River. And it began in August, September of 1798 when election season was beginning. There were elections in Northampton and in Bucks County for state assembly and also for the United States Congress. And in those elections, two things happened. First, for the first time, the opposition party, the Jeffersonian Republicans, succeeded in ousting Federalists from both the U.S. Congress and the four seats for the state assembly. Second, Pennsylvania Germans began to move into those slots, replacing uh, Quakers, Moravians, and others. So uh, these elections happened at the exact same time that the assessors were making their way in. Some of the assessors had lost elections that fall and yet were coming to take these rates. Meanwhile, 
the Pennsylvania Germans believing they had just won this victory, a victory against the Sedition Act, a victory against the Direct Tax Act, a victory against standing armies, were now seeing these laws being carried forth anyway. So they began to resist. Uh, they used their militia units. They believed their Second Amendment right gave them the right to organize the militia, to gather petitions, to seek the repeal of the Sedition Act, which they claimed violated the First Amendment, to seek the repeal of the direct tax, uh, and to call for the dismantling of the new professional army. We had an army of 3,000 before this, but it was multiplied by five times to 15,000 in 1798. And there were provisions for other armed forces as high as 20 to 40,000 people as well. So they used the militia to gather petitions. They also created township associations where they agreed with one another not to allow their homes to be evaluated. They called for the boycotts of uh, assessors who ran stores to boycott the purchase of their goods. All of this reminiscent of the American Revolution. They erected liberty poles, which are like flagpoles with uh, slogans on them, slogans like uh, the Constitution sacred, no gag laws, referring to the Sedition Act, mm -hmm. liberty or death. Uh, another that uh, earned a group of people uh, a uh, prosecution under the Sedition Law had a sign that read the United States of America, free, sovereign, and independent. That was sedition in 1799. <laughs> so they used all of these sorts of means, and they also threatened and warned off their assessors. But as often as they threatened them, they made offers to indemnify them should they come into any fines for failure to execute their duty. So this was a tremendously, uh, it was a tremendous uh, event in terms of its lack of violence. What characterized the opposition to the Stamp Act in 1765, the Tea Act in 1773, Shays and the Whiskey Rebellions was violence. Uh, at the very least, fashioning effigies of the tax assessors and burning them in public. At worst, stripping their clothes from them, coating them with tar and covering them with feathers, riding them out of town on a rail. And worse than that, shooting them, pulling down their houses, burning their homes. None of that happened in Free's Rebellion. The only effigies they burned is they took mock copies of the Alien and Sedition Acts and burned them. But no harm ever befell any of the tax assessors. Uh, because of that, do you think people uh, became more sympathetic towards this rebellion as opposed to the whiskey and shades? I think afterwards, yes, uh, because most of the media reported on the the order at law that existed in this region and that uh, any claims to the contrary were fictitious and, and just absolutely you know, false. And, it, and it's interesting, you do mention media because, you know, we think of media in terms of modern presidential elections, the internet and uh, yeah. Uh, high speed and high process, but in its own primitive way, the media was very important back then too, wasn't it? Well, compared to the rest of the world, American media was hardly primitive. Uh, we were a country of newspapers, and uh, many, many, many more so than you would see in England. Uh, just a tremendous amount of news outlets. You look up into a tiny place like uh, the, the Lehigh River Valley, and they had their own German language paper. Uh, Jacob Schneider's Redinger Adler that headed over from Reading. And they could read the Philadelphia Aurora and the New York Daily Advertiser and uh, the Gazette of the United States. Half a dozen, 10 different newspapers could be read uh, every day at a local tavern. And media was ubiquitous, really, in, in the colonial period compared uh, to other places at the exact same time around the world. Uh, Paul, why don't we now let's actually get into a little more of the actual events. Let's talk about first the, uh, 
the arrest of John Freeze? Well, um, let's start with some of the other arrests, and then we can kind of get the freeze. Okay. I think um, the, uh, the the federal government in February of uh, 1799 got wind that there was a tremendous amount of resistance to this tax. They sent a federal marshal to Northampton County to make arrests, and he carried with them a warrants for 17 people returnable to Philadelphia because they believed that the local constabulary uh, was so universally against this tax that there's no way that they could try them in the region. He began making arrests in late February. At the exact same time that he was making his rounds in the uh, Bucks County Township of Lower Milford, the assessors there were just getting ready to begin their assessment. The people of Lower Milford had watched the Northampton resistance for months and had been learning lessons from them. They had used their militia and their captain was John Freeze. He was about 49 years old, militia captain. He was a vendue crier, uh, an auctioneer, who worked with the local constabulary, like the Justice of the Peace and the Sheriff, but also with the people trying to sell their land for as much as he could get to help them get out of debt and so forth. He was bilingual. Uh, he was German born German, German speaking, of course, but it also picked up enough English uh, to be able to be a perfect person for this job and also a perfect man to really coordinate resistance in his own township and coordinate it between his county and Northampton County to the north. Well, the resistance began there in Bucks County when the recessors came in in Lower Milford at the exact same time that the marshal was making his arrests in Northampton County. And these two converged at the same time. Freeze and his men had heard that the arrests had been made and the marshal had jailed his 17 prisoners in Bethlehem in the Sun Inn and was preparing to take them back to Philadelphia for trial. The Northamptoners had said that they were going to try to bail out these men, that their Sixth Amendment rights were being violated, that they deserved to have a trial by a jury of their peers, by their own people, in the area in which their crimes were alleged to have been committed. Freeze and his men agreed and on the 7th of March, 1799, 40 of his men met 100 Northampton County men. The total armed force was 140. A crowd of about 250 followed them and 400 people strong marched into Bethlehem on the 7th of March, seeking to bail those prisoners, not to break them out. And they used the militia not to provide military force, but to legitimize their group, believing that the Second Amendment gave them the authority to use, their, use the militia. Well, the, uh, the, the marshal couldn't accept the bail, and after about three hours' time of negotiations, while, remember, this is a tavern, the tavern keeper had been shuttling out buckets of whiskey and cider into the crowd for about three hours, finally the marshal decided that it was time to give up the prisoners without the bail in order to defuse the situation. He released the prisoners. Within five minutes, all 400 people dispersed, and it was over, or so everyone thought. He reported the prisoner stolen to President Adams. Five days later, President Adams issued a presidential proclamation declaring these events to be treason and insurrection, essentially hamstringing the prosecutors when they would have to prosecute these cases. Uh, within about a month, an army of uh, about a thousand regular soldiers and a couple of thousand uh, militia from Pennsylvania and Jersey marched out of Philadelphia right through Norristown up through Montgomery County. And pacified the region. Really, there was nothing to pacify. On the 18th of March, uh, the, uh, there was a massive meeting by hundreds of men who all agreed unanimously to submit to the law and allow their homes to be assessed. There's no insurrection going on. 
well, anyway, the military came in. They arrested about 140 people. Uh, they charged 13 with treason. Only three were indicted, and that was Fries, Fries, Getman, and Haney, and they were convicted. Uh, they indicted a number of others on uh, crimes ranging from sedition to obstruction of process, conspiracy, and so forth. About 40 people ended up being convicted out of the 140 that were arrested. Fries's trial is, is very interesting. Uh, the trials happened in the spring of 1799, and Fries's first trial ended in a conviction, but it was overturned as a mistrial. One juror had uh, became evident that he had spoke a prejudice before the trial. And so he was held over for trial later in the summer. Meanwhile, a, a yellow fever epidemic hit Philadelphia, and all of the prisoners were moved from Philadelphia to Norristown, and the trials were moved there as well. Well, those prisoners brought the yellow fever with them from Philadelphia to Norristown, and two of these men died while awaiting their trials. Fries's second trial wouldn't come until May of 1800, and he was again tried for treason, convicted, and sentenced to death on the 23rd of May, 1800. Now, the government wouldn't hold their trials in the region where their crimes were committed, but they were prepared to build Freeze's gallows in Quakertown, right in the middle of the area. So he was sentenced to death and awaiting his death when on the 21st of May, at the 11th hour, President Adams issued a full and complete pardon to Freeze and all of the others who were convicted. Was there a large public outcry to free Freeze? Or? There was a tremendous uh, outcry for this. Um, the two trials were, uh, were enormous media events. Uh, the first trial in May of 1799 lasted for more than a week, which is unheard of in the colonial and the early national periods, uh, 18th and even into the 19th century. And it was covered in newspapers all around the country and as far away as England, uh, talking about the, the trial was about the meaning of treason and the meaning of sedition. Uh, and uh, of course, it's, it was a difficult case, I would think, to try nowadays, but then, of course, they did to argue that opposition to one federal law was levying war against the United States of America. But that's what the uh, prosecutor, William Rawl, had done. And he he began that uh, when he prosecuted two cases from the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, U.S. versus Vigil and U.S. versus Mitchell. And so opposition to one law could be construed as levying war against the United States. Just to sum up for us here, uh, Paul. What was the long-term significance, the legacy of Freeze's Rebellion for the country? Well, it became a bridge for Pennsylvania Germans to really enter politics and begin to dominate local and state politics in uh, Eastern Pennsylvania and in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, but even more long-term than that, uh, well, immediately what they got in that too was um, understanding that, that partisan politics was not an avenue that would uh, benefit them. Uh, right after the rebellion, they began to engage in local politics, but they did so as both Federalists and as Jeffersonian Republicans, back and forth. They were more concerned with who held the office rather than what party they belonged to. But within about three or four decades, they kind of fell into the same trap that most Americans did, fell into the second party system and the trap of identifying themselves with one party. And uh, these Germans ended up falling in with the Democratic parties of Jacksonian Democrats later on. Well, it's a fascinating story, uh, Paul, and you tell it very well. And there's so much more uh, that our readers will get from reading your book, Freeze's Rebellion, The Enduring Struggle for the American Revolution. I'm Carl Hallecker, and this is Book Chat. Mm -hmm.